The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So last week, Trevor talked with us about Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, and the church at Corinth. He emphasized the importance of small faithfulness. So that was kind of our our phrase or our tag language, small faithfulness. We want to be involved in low-key, long-term, faithful ministry, and we want to see God bring fruit through that. And this week, we're going to hone in on one of those two words. We're going to Focus on the word faithful. Is what we are doing in our day-to-day lives actually being done in faith? Or is it being done for some other reason? I think about my story. I grew up just all around Christianity. I would have identified as a Christian. I was at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, you know, did the youth group. I was even in youth choir, much to the detriment of all of my friends and the youth leader. He would always say, Aaron, maybe just sing a little bit quieter. Um, I would always try to sing super bass because I I knew I couldn't go anywhere high and it was just bad and unhelpful. But I was all around Christianity. I looked apart my, my parents, my dad was a doctor, my mom was a teacher, I had one sister, so it was just this good-looking family that looks like it's got it all together. I was always present, you know, trying to be kind, trying to be respectful in school, made good grades, played sports, did all the things, and yet I was all around Christianity. I may have looked the part, but I was totally enslaved to my sin, Totally unbeknownst to me. I was separated from Christ and I had no earthly idea. I may have looked like a Christian to others. I was engaged. I maybe was able to say a few things that sounded kind of like Christian language. But I was not one. I was not a disciple of Christ. We're going to talk about what it means to be faithful and maybe even what it means to be close to Christianity but to not be fully submitted to the Lord Jesus. Let's read in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left from there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples." So Paul was in Corinth, a place where he faced great hostility, but he stayed there many days, encouraging people with the good news of Jesus. But then he set sail back home towards Jerusalem and Antioch. There should be, hopefully, a a, a map on the screen. So he's way out on the western part in Corinth, out to the left. He's going to eventually end up in Ephesus, but he's making his way all the way to the right, to Syria, to Jerusalem, 
to Antioch. Priscilla and Aquila, who uh, Trevor introduced us to last week, have joined him. But before he gets all the way back home, he stops. Uh, he first takes a, a stop in Sincrea, right on the coast near Corinth. And there he cut his hair because he was under a vow. It seems like this kind of unique language that Luke inserts here. This comes from Numbers chapter 6. He's taken a Nazarite vow to have a season of separation committed to the Lord. And at the end of this season of separation, he would cut his hair. And the reason Paul did this, he's obviously not under the Old Testament law anymore because Christ has come to fulfill it. But this is part of the law of love. If you were with us maybe six or seven weeks ago, Trevor hit on the law of love at the end of Acts chapter 15, the beginning of Acts chapter 16. Paul does this to honor the Jews that he's around. He's become everything to all people to to serve them and to care for them. So he takes this Nazarite vow and then he cuts his hair at the end of it. And so he continues along on his journey. He makes his way. He's starting to make his way across the Aegean Sea. And he lands at Ephesus. And then Paul did as he normally does. This probably seems like you've heard this each and every week if you've been here with us. What does he do when he comes to a new city? He goes to the synagogue and he goes and reasons about the scriptures. He goes and tries to persuade the Jews to believe in the Lord Jesus I love this continual emphasis on reason and persuasion not being antithetical to faith in the gospel. And the Jews were clearly intrigued and wanted Paul to stay longer, but for some reason he thought it was necessary to keep moving. And he does caveat for them. He says, if God wills and allows, I will return. It's funny, I joked uh, a few weeks ago when I was up here about Josh always saying, Lord willing, if you text him and you organize a date, Josh and I think I have lunch on the calendar this Thursday, and he'll say, Lord willing, you know, I'll see you at Chick-fil-A at 12 on, on Thursday. And obviously, it's if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills something else, something else will come to be. And we get that from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town And spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So this isn't necessarily central to our text today, but I love that idea. It's just so central to our lives. If the Lord wills, then the events that we've planned and taken the time to think about will come. But ultimately, God's will will be done in our lives. So Paul leaves Ephesus. He lands back on the lower part of Syria in Caesarea. It's at the very bottom right, kind of near where uh, Jerusalem is circled. He then goes up the mountain, which is actually south, into Jerusalem. And then he goes back down the mountain on a long journey, about 300 miles, goes all the way up the coast to Antioch. And obviously this would have taken him a good while to do that. And this is him, again, returning to his home church. I think the last time, or maybe even two times ago when I preached, Paul had ended his first missionary journey and returned home to Antioch, which is his home church, that sent him out. This is happening again. He's ending his second missionary journey, returning to his home church, and he's about to be sent out 
on his third missionary journey. This would be like for us, receiving Bryce and Elizabeth Harrison, Hannah Squires. We've sent them off to the eastern part of Canada a a couple of years ago. That's them returning home to be encouraged and then going back out to their work. These two verses, it's so subtle. It almost seems like nothing happens in verse 22 and verse 23. But it's a major turn in the book of Acts. It's very easy to miss it. The first missionary journey took place in Acts 13 and 14. The second missionary journey takes place in Acts 16, 17. And then it ends right here in chapter 18, verse 22. And Paul, it's not like he was just gone for a week, three weeks, you know, a little short-term mission trip. He's gone for three years, and now he's returning back home. We don't necessarily know exactly what happens in Antioch. But then he is sent out again. Verse 23 begins his third missionary journey. And these aren't short trips. It's going to be four years. Uh, It's going to go through chapter 21. It's going to take him four years total to do it. But Paul, Paul does spend some time at Antioch, presumably being encouraged and exhorted and just receiving the love of fellow brothers and sisters. But then he travels, the very end of verse 23, he travels through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. The exact same language is used in Acts chapter 16. So he's going to start, and he's just going to make about the same path. He makes a slightly different path, kind of stays more inland instead of on the coast. But he's going to travel and go back to encourage the brothers and sisters. The exact language Luke uses here at the end of verse 23 is strengthening all the disciples. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about in this sermon ways to grow in faithfulness. We're going to focus in on this word faithful. So the first way we can grow in faithfulness that we see from Paul here at the end of verse 23 is be strengthened by others. Paul goes and strengthens these believers, goes and strengthens these young churches, and then strengthen others. Be used by God to strengthen and encourage others in the faith. Trevor and I recorded a podcast on Tuesday, and Jonathan, in his great ways, was able to get it out there immediately on Tuesday, and I've heard from a number of you that it's been helpful. We talked about making community versus taking community, being community makers versus community takers. We want to be men and women who strengthen and reach out to people and encourage brothers and sisters in the faith, but also unbelievers. We want to reach out to those who are around us and bring them in and build community around them and point them towards Christ. And we also need to be strengthened. We need to be humble. We need to be teachable. We need to understand our great need for gospel encouragement. All right, let's go on in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. 
So we have this totally separate event. Our, we have three kind of sets of passages this morning. There's almost this kind of sandwich passage, kind of Paul in the first part, Paul in the third part. But then in this middle part, we're in Ephesus, but Paul is not there. He's not there until chapter 19. We learn about this man, Apollos, a Jew, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent man, one who is knowledgeable and has uh, insight into the scripture. But he's a man that has zeal without maybe the greatest of sense. He lacks a certain level of wisdom. He's fervent in the spirit. He knew some of the ways of the Lord. That's what Luke tells us, the author of this passage. But he spoke and he spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, but he he was missing something. He didn't have an absolutely complete picture of who Jesus was. He was not fully correct. Maybe he lacked certain precision. But he still spoke boldly in the synagogue. And as he's speaking boldly, our friends Priscilla and Aquila do this beautiful thing. They hear him, and then they take him aside, and they explain to him the gospel more accurately. I love the the two sets of phrases that are in this passage. It says that Apollos taught the word accurately, which seems to be high praise. I want to get up here and I want to teach the word accurately. But then Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and say they explain him the scriptures more accurately. There's a way to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the Lord. And what a helpful picture of correction. This isn't public embarrassment. They don't just chastise him in public. It's a helpful encouragement towards knowing God and the good news of the gospel more accurately by taking him aside. And so my big question for us is, can we receive this kind of correction? Can you receive this kind of correction? And can we give correction graciously and humbly and with love? Priscilla and Aquila Trevor really helpfully pointed out last week, when their names are together, it's going to be Priscilla first and then Aquila. Both of them have such an important role to play in helping Apollos develop in his ministry. All of us in this room have an important role to play in each other's sanctification. In even the pastor's ability to teach and to exposit the word. We need each other's encouragement, man and woman. They're both used to raise up Apollos. And then Apollos, he desired to go to Achaia, which is essentially back across the Aegean Sea. He wants to go to Athens and Corinth, where Paul was previously. The church encouraged him in this pursuit. They even sent word for him. They they were so encouraged by him that they were like, yes, Apollos is going to do good ministry. Let's send word before him so he can know the brothers and sisters there. And then Apollos goes, and the language Luke uses is that he greatly helped the men and the women in Achaia. How beautiful. What a picture of discipleship and growth that he's able to grow from Priscilla and Aquila and go and greatly help other and sisters. He refuted Jews in public. He showed by the scriptures that the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ from the Old Testament, that this man was Jesus. He does sit very similar to Paul. It's a beautiful picture of both correction and discipleship. 
we see small faithfulness. Without Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos likely doesn't have the impact that he does. So the question is, what kind of impact can you and I have on each other, have on our neighbors, have on our coworkers for the sake of Christ? So as we think about ways to grow in faithfulness, our first one was be strengthened by others and strengthen others. Our second one is be corrected by others and correct others. I've met regularly with you guys in the church. I I came here about three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, and it has just been my joy to, to pastor and to shepherd the flock, to meet with you, to be encouraged by you, to be mutually encouraged in our love for the Lord. But also as I meet, and especially with guys, do I, do I like to spend time challenging guys to grow in godliness? If we've sat together, I, I love talking about what your time in the Word looks like, how you're ministering to neighbors and to coworkers. But I also want to lead out in being able to be corrected and being able to be encouraged towards godliness. I tried to tell our community group early on, like, I want to be the first one to receive correction, to receive exhortation, to grow in godliness. I also want to have a freedom of conscience to exhort and to correct others. Many times I'll I'll say I'm, I'm happy to correct, I'm happy to exhort Because usually I've received that correction from other brothers and sisters in my 12 or so years walking with the Lord. And usually I'm not trying to push somebody to something that I'm not trying to very purposefully live out myself. Apollos, he spoke accurately, but he still had room to speak more accurately. He then powerfully refuted the Jews and showed Jesus to be the promised one of the scriptures. And so we have room to grow. We have room to receive correction. And then we can also go and graciously give correction to those brothers and sisters we love. Let's, let's read in uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading, we see that language again, them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I'm not going to lie, when I read those first seven verses a number of weeks ago, I was thinking, I'm going to get up here and preach this passage that has tongues and prophecy and two different baptism and disciples and 
what in the world am I going to say? I was kind of thinking of what Jim did a few weeks ago. If you were here, Jim just got up here. The Holy Spirit was in his passage and just said, we think the Holy Spirit continues today. I'm going to say something a little controversial that the Holy Spirit's gifts probably still continue. And then he just left it there. And he just ended and he just kept moving. And I was like, maybe that's what I'm going to need to get up here and do is just read the scripture and let the Lord work. But by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit, I've read a lot over the last couple of weeks and tried to invest time in prayer to, to seek to understand what the Lord is saying in these verses. We see at the beginning, Apollos has, has left Ephesus for Corinth, and now Paul has made his way from Antioch. Uh, we should be able to throw that map up again. Yeah, so Paul, now his third missionary journey has begun. It began way out in Antioch in the far right-hand uh, side of the map. And he has started to make his way west, and he eventually lands in Ephesus, and he finds 12 disciples. Disciples is the only word we get there. And so the big question is, who are these guys disciples of? We learn later that there's 12 of them. Who are these guys disciples of? Are they disciples of Jesus? Are they disciples of John? Because it's, they, it talks about that they were baptized uh, with John's baptism. Many people argue different ways. I read commentators all over the place. Some were Jesus, some were John. And I'm going to argue almost that, that they're not really fully either. They're not really fully either disciples. Paul sees something in them. He sees the Lord working in some way. So he begins to question them. But verse 2 tells us that they did not receive the Holy Spirit at the time of belief. And then verse 3 tells us they received John's baptism. Paul quickly understands that they did not get the full message, though. He knows they didn't get the full truth, that uh, key parts of the truth were missing, because they don't have the Spirit. They heard a version of John's message, but not the whole thing. John made clear that his baptism was one of repentance. John the Baptist, if you don't know, came early in the Gospels. The Gospels are all about Jesus' life. John the Baptist comes, and his whole mission in the opening chapters of the Gospels is to prepare the way for the Messiah to come, for someone greater than him to come. And he says when he does his baptism that he's doing one of repentance and that one is coming after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. You can see it Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, John chapter 1 verse 33. And so these guys, they were close to being Christian. They were almost Christian, but something was amiss. They did not have the Holy Spirit. For these 12, their knowledge of the way was more problematic than Apollos. Apollos was was more advanced. These 12 were less advanced. They did not know that Jesus would give the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, it talks about John's baptism. John's baptism was anticipatory, a baptism of preparation. He told people to believe in the one that was coming after him. He anticipated that the Messiah was coming. But praise God that here in Acts chapter 19 and here in Greer in 2023... The Messiah is no longer anticipated. We don't need preparation for the Messiah to come. 
with the end of the Gospels and with Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, the anticipation is over. The Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, has come. He's lived, he's died, he's been raised from the dead. He's returned to the Father and he's sent to his followers the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, once they hear, the 12 men are baptized. This is really the only example in scripture of somebody being, you might say, re-baptized. But it's because they were missing key parts of the truths about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. I think this serves as a warning for us. All of us in the room, many of us have grown up around the church. Some of us came to know the Lord very early on. Some of us later. Many of us have young children in this, uh, either in here or across the way in the Ed building. This serves as a warning to us about baptism and to do our best to discern a credible profession of faith. We want to be baptized after we have actually believed in the Lord Jesus. That's a big component of why we are Baptist. We believe in believer's baptism, being regenerate, being born again, and then being baptized. The apostles appear in the Gospels to maybe likely have received John's baptism or some type of baptism, but there's no question of rebaptism for them. Pentecost transformed their preparatory experience of baptism into permanent indwelling of the Spirit. Apollos is not rebaptized in the previous chapter in 18. He seemed to know and experience enough of the Spirit in his walk that there was room still to grow, but he had the Spirit. But that's not the same with these Ephesians disciples. They had no such experience. So verses 6 and 7, they're baptized Paul then lays his hands on them. The Spirit comes. They speak in tongues and prophecy. These signs function as an assurance to both the converts and the current Christians that they were acceptable to the Lord. We see similar language happen before. Chapter 8 with the Samaritans, we see the Holy Spirit come upon them. Chapter 10 with the Gentiles, The Spirit comes upon them, and then they prophesy and speak in tongues to show, yes, really, the gospel is not just for the Jews. It is for the Samaritans. It is for the Gentiles. It is for these disciples that received John's baptism but did not know fully who Jesus was. So it seems to function as much a sign to the missionaries as to the converts themselves. The unusual gift was needed to affirm that this group of, you might say, semi-Christians were previously not fully members of Christ church, but now they are. And then verses 8 through 10, Paul again does what he always does, enters the synagogue, boldly reasons and persuades from the scriptures about God's kingdom. Some responded with stubbornness and hostility, which again we should find throughout Acts is not a surprise. Some of you in this room responded with stubbornness and hostility towards the gospel when you first heard of it. Some of you in this room are likely still responding with stubbornness and hostility towards the gospel. Some receive it quickly, some it takes many, many months 
and even years. I think about for myself, I, um, I told you I grew up all around Christianity and then the church, thought I was a Christian, but in many ways I was stubborn to the teachings of Christ, to the teachings of the Bible, and to what the Lord instructs his followers to do. Until the Lord got my attention on January 24th of, of 2010, the Lord just radically got my attention. And I wouldn't even say I became a believer that day, but he, he, op- he started to open my eyes or reveal himself to me. Something happened. And then it took a full year of investigating and diving in and asking hard questions, receiving discipleship from, from other men, reading God's word, and investing and seeing, is this, is this true? I needed to be persuaded with, I needed to be reasoned with from the scriptures. And it took me a full year to, to turn to the Lord Jesus. So then I was baptized January 30th of 2011, a whole, a whole year later. And some of you are still in that state wrestling with, do I believe in the Lord Jesus? Do I want to give my life to him? Paul sees the stubbornness and sees this hostility He withdrew with these disciples and went to this kind of new public hall that they would gather in uh, essentially every day of the week, the hall of Tyrannus, and he encourages the saints and shares more and more about who Jesus is. And then Luke tells us something astounding, that all the residents of Asia heard in the two years this happened. Now, we've got to assume that this is likely hyperbole. How would you ever know if literally every single person had heard but this is beautiful, a beautiful picture of the widespread dissemination of the gospel. So if you are a Christian in the room, I would, I would pray that this passage, these, these few verses would challenge you. No, none of us are gifted like Paul. And yet all of us are called and commanded to make disciples, to evangelize, and to share And I know many of us in this room have a a difficulty with spontaneous evangelism. Maybe we had terrible experiences growing up as a child or in young adulthood, going door to door or whatever it looks like. I'm not saying it has to look like that. We, We wholeheartedly believe in relational evangelism and evangelizing to neighbors and coworkers and whoever. But I pray that you would share the good news of the gospel. And my question to you is, when is the last time you shared the good news of the gospel? When was the last time you just talked to somebody about what they believe, about what you believe, about what the scriptures say about who Jesus is? I would encourage you to to begin praying and asking the Lord for opportunities, to even begin praying and asking for a person to speak to. As we think about the 12 men who became actual disciples, my question then turns to all, for all of us in this room, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, are you close to being a Christian? Are you almost Christian? Or is your life fully, and I do mean fully, submitted to Jesus? Are you daily following the Lord Jesus, or are you just giving lip service? So our third way to grow in faithfulness, our first one, be strengthened by others, strengthen others. Second one, be corrected by others, correct others. Third, be assessed by others. Assess yourself. This might be 
on the screen. I don't know. We'll see. Be assessed by others. Assess yourself honestly. Have you ever invited feedback into your life? Have you ever spent taken the time to see brothers and sisters around you, older brothers, older sisters, more mature brothers and sisters around you? And have you taken the time to maybe ask questions like, do you think I'm living in a godly manner? Do you think I'm doing my part in evangelism, discipleship, loving the body, loving neighbors, coworkers, those outside the church? How am I doing parenting? How do I seem to be doing as a husband or as a wife? How are we doing with hospitality. Casey and I have multiple people in our lives that we ask to speak in directly to our parenting. We ask them to come over to our house and watch us even parent for a night and receive encouragement and exhortation. Do you ever have others honestly assess you? And if not, I would encourage you to do it. And then I would encourage you to assess yourself honestly. Assess the log that is in your eye before you see the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, we are not saved by our works, by our habits. But our works and our habits reveal our faith. They form and they shape us. So it even challenges you to think about your engagement with the church. Your engagement with Ridgewood Church or whatever church you call home. Consider your engagement with reading the word and with living in community. And I'm not arguing for a type of legalism, but you will be known by your fruit. And it's pretty easy to see, at least from my seat on the bus, those people who are engaged and at service, you know, 45 of the 52 Sundays we have, that person's experience of walking with the Lord is oftentimes different than the person who's here 25 times or 15 times or who's at community groups sparingly or who invites brothers and sisters over. And obviously all of us have different jobs and different responsibilities. But I would encourage you to assess yourself honestly. What do your habits look like? What is your engagement with God and his word? I think it's reasonable to bet that some of us in here are close to Christianity but not fully submitted to Christ. You may not be a Christian if your main thought about Jesus is that he was a good guy with some good teaching. You may not be a Christian if you consistently hide, not literally, but through a facade. How are you living when no one watches you? What does your life look like in the quiet of your home when you're by yourself? I think that pretty much can tell you everything you need to know. You may not be a Christian if you have none of the fruit of the Spirit. You may not be a Christian if you care about money, prestige, the way you look, the way you are perceived more than knowing and walking closely with King Jesus. Think about Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, two of the most challenging verses for me in all of Scripture. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Christian life does not stop at salvation. It does not stop at baptism. It, it simply begins when the Lord saves us, when the Spirit comes into us. And yes, 
Many of us in this room struggle with assurance of the faith. We have assurance of salvation if we have the Spirit. Because the Spirit dwells in us, Jesus is committed to us. But our lives should look different. Not radically different every single day, but there should be slow growth. I don't actually know if I I put it on the screen. I had a kind of a chart where there's kind of slow growth. Yeah, exactly. A nice little snail kind of. you, You might have your ups and your downs, but the general trajectory is that we are growing in godliness, growing in Christ's likeness, repenting of sin. I can't tell you if you are a Christian or not. I can help you measure growth and fruit over time. But what I can tell you also is that you need to commit yourself to growth. Grow, grow, grow. Pray for the Lord to continue to transform your heart. Audrey and I have been memorizing last week or so John chapter 8, verse 34 and verse 36. Verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. All of us separated from Christ are enslaved to our sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are eternally separated from our great God. But then verse 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus this morning, I pray you would see the beauty of the freedom that Christ offers us in salvation. Christ has paid it all for you. You do nothing but trust in him. Your works do not save you. You are saved by grace through faith. The last two sets of verses I want to share with you are, are the, I think maybe the first two sets of verses I ever memorized as a believer. I don't think I have it on the screen but it's just so impactful for me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Actually, no, I do think I do. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I memorize these verses right after coming to know the Lord, knowing that the Lord cares about our fruit. We are not saved by our works, and yet the Lord cares that we we grow. I pray that for the saints of Ridgewood, 184 members, that all of us on the day of judgment, when we come before the Lord Jesus, we would be able to say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would say, enter into my presence Not depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so may we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Would you receive the encouragement and the correction of brothers and sisters around you? 
And would you most importantly taste and see that the Lord is good? Behold the beauty and the wonder of the gospel that Christ has died for you, that Christ has been raised for you, that Christ ascend, ascended to the right hand of the Father, continues to rule and reign and intercede for us. Each one of our every sins is covered by the blood of Jesus. Would you take Christ and would you behold him? We have the beauty this morning of partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful picture of this gospel message. That Christ's body has been broken and his blood has been shed for us. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to walk through our liturgy as we think about the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to grow in faithfulness. Would you grant to us faith if we do not have faith? If we have not put our faith in the Lord Jesus, would you grant it to us this morning? Or would you do a work to draw us closer to yourself? It may take six months, it may take a year, it may take ten years to draw us to yourself. I pray you would help do do that this morning. Draw us ever closer. And Lord, for those of us who are walking with you, Lord, would we grow in faithfulness as well? Would we receive the correction of others, the assessment of others, the encouragement, and the exhortation? Lord, thank you for being able to partake of this supper. Amen.